Sunday the 10th of October 2004, Pasir Panjag, Singapore. An eight-year-old girl's mother had been on a trip home to China, leaving the eight-year-old in the care of their flatmates. The girl's mother had been away for almost a fortnight by the time that October Sunday came around, and the girl was deeply missing her mother. And so, as she did quite frequently, the girl decided that she wanted to phone her mother to speak to her. She asked one of the flatmates whether she could go to the phone booth at a nearby food court, which was less than 500 meters away from the flat they lived in. The flatmates agreed. And so, shortly before 1 p.m., the eight-year-old girl left the flat and headed for the phone, excited to hear her mother's voice. Little did the flatmate know, the girl would walk out of their flat that Sunday afternoon and never return. The following episode is not suitable for those under the age of 13. Viewer discretion and parental guidance is advised. Before we delve deep into this case, I'd just like to thank Magellan TV for sponsoring this episode. I'm sure you've heard of Magellan TV before, especially on my channel, and it's not without good reason. Magellan TV is my absolute go-to for all my documentary needs, with a wide range of documentaries from space, nature to true crime, and with 4K at no extra cost, it's the perfect place to wind down after a long day while still learning something new. Magellan TV actually adds between 15 to 20 hours of brand new content every single week, so if you're worried about running out of true crime content to watch, worry no more. I've just watched In Search of Flight AF447, which is a documentary about the Air France flights which took off from Rio de Janeiro in Brazil and seemingly vanished into thin air. The show explores the timeline of events and the desperate search for the missing plane and tries to answer the most pressing question. How did such a routine flight over the Atlantic end in such tragedy? Be sure to use the link at the top of the description or the link in the pinned comments and use your one month free trial to go watch In Search of Flight AF447. And once you've finished it, dive deep into Magellan TV's extensive true crime collection. As I said before, new documentaries like In Search of Flight AF447 are added to Magellan TV weekly, so don't sleep on this offer. Grab your one month free trial using the links below and thank you to Magellan TV for constantly supporting this channel and making content like this video possible. Now, back to the case. Huang Na was born on the 26th of September 1996 to her parents Huan Qingrong and Huan Chuoying in Putain, Fuchen, China. Na's mother, in an attempt to further her education and secure a better future for her daughter, became what was known at the time as a study mama. A study mama is a term used to describe Chinese nationals who bring their children to Singapore to further their academic career due to the high quality of education in Singapore compared to back home. Both of Na's parents had been born to farming families in 1973 and they had started dating one another in 1995. 
Shortly thereafter, the couple married and Na's mother fell pregnant with her. In 1996, the same year that Na was born, her father left China for Singapore to work illegally as a vegetable packer at the Pasir Panjang Wholesale Centre. You'll have to excuse me through this video, my Chinese slash Malay is not very good and I'm trying to pronounce these names and places to the best of my ability, so please do excuse me. Na's mother had trusted her father in this move, hoping that he'd somehow find fortune and be able to provide a better future for them. Na's mother stayed in China with their first child, but Na's father failed to stay loyal. It soon emerged that he'd been having several affairs with other people in Singapore, news that shattered the young family. Na's mother filed for divorce and ultimately won full custody of Na. She was now a single mother with little financial backing and the dream of providing the best possible future for her daughter. Na's mother ended up meeting a businessman who she married and moved in with, and in early 2003, Na's mother fell pregnant for the second time with her new husband. Though, with her sights set on the prosperity of Singapore, following the birth of Na's mother's second child, Na's half-sister, Na's mother entrusted her relatives with the care of the newborn, and in May of 2003, Na's mother immigrated to Singapore with Na so that Na could attend the Jintai Primary School for the best academic chances possible. Na and her mother moved into a flat at the Pasir Panjang Wholesale Centre and they shared that flat with four other people who Na's mother would befriend quite quickly. Na's mother found work at a vegetable stall at the wholesale centre and her pay just at this vegetable stall was far more lucrative than the job she had held back at home. And as soon as Na started at this new primary school, it was clear that she was very intelligent and she succeeded and exceeded at this school. She even won a prize for her schoolwork and told her mother that she wanted to become a doctor when she grows up. Despite this, when exactly Na did her homework is a mystery as she would spend most of her time wandering about the extensive wholesale centre on her own day or night. Na would chat away to her uncles and aunties, people who worked at the stores in the wholesale centre, making friends wherever she went. It is important to note that uncles and aunties within this context does not mean actual uncles and aunties, it's just a way of showing respect to your elders within the culture that she was brought up in. And it was clear that Na had a routine of where she went in the centre and who she spoke with and when. In the afternoon after school, she'd spend her time with the people at the mini marts, which was just below her flats. She'd also sometimes go to the nearby hawker centre to grab some food before returning back to the flats. Eventually, she would return back to the small flat that she shared with her mother and four flatmates, it was a flat that was so small that it could only fit a single bed. Na and her mother would share the bed and their flatmates would sleep elsewhere, likely on the floor. Naturally, exact details about Na, who she was, what she got up to, is very hard to come by due to her age, being just eight years old. Around the end of September 2004, Na's mother decided to fly back home to China to visit her second daughter, Na's half-sister, who was at this point 11 months old. Na's mother left her in the care of one of their flatmates, who ensured Na continued going to school and stayed fed and healthy and continued up, you know, just entrusted her with her care and looked after her. Of course, Na's independent personality saw her continue her routine of speaking to her uncles and aunties in the wholesale centre after school, but she'd always be back in the flat by the evening and never went far. 
On the second Sunday of October 2004, the 10th, Na's mother had booked a flight back to Singapore later that night, but Na was still deeply missing her mother. And as it was a Sunday and there was no school, Na had very little to do, and so she decided that she wanted to go to the phone, just 500 metres away from the flat, to ring her mother, just to hear her voice. Na also wanted to remind her mother about two presents that she'd requested she bring back from China for her, a computerised English dictionary and a pair of sandals. And so, shortly before 1pm, eight-year-old Na told one of the flatmates that they'd be right back and headed to the phone booth 500 metres away, which was something that she had done many times previously. Only this time, Na would never return. The flatmates, who we'll call Laura for the purposes of privacy and identity protection, didn't initially panic when Na didn't return home immediately. Laura had just presumed that Na had gotten caught up talking to her uncles and aunties in the wholesale centre and that she'd be back soon. Though, by the time 2.30pm came around, Laura began to grow concerned. She decided to go down to the wholesale centre to look for Na just to make sure that she's okay, but Laura could see no sign of the eight-year-old girl. She decided to go to the primary school that Na attended just in case she had gone there after making the call to her mother. After all, it was just a 15-minute walk away. Though, as with at the wholesale centre, Na was nowhere to be seen. Pure panic flooded through Laura's body as she raced back to the flat to get the help of the three other flatmates. And together, the four adults combed through the wholesale centre looking for Na. They asked every person they came across if they'd seen her, the people behind the stalls and passerbys, but their efforts were fruitless. That was until they spoke to Tuk Leng Hao, who was a 22-year-old vegetable packer that worked with Na's mother. Tuk Leng Hao told Laura and her flatmates that he had in fact seen the eight-year-old Na in the wholesale centre, but that he had seen her at 1pm, which was around the same time that Na had gone to the phone booth to call her mother. And by the time that Laura and her flatmates had spoken to Tuk Leng Hao, it was now 9pm. The four adults searched for another hour, and at 10pm on the 10th of October 2004, Laura called the police to report Na as missing, and what would follow would be a national obsession with the missing eight-year-old girl, and an investigation that would be followed closely by the public of Singapore. Na's mother rushed back to Singapore to search for her missing daughter, determined to find her safely. Equipped with pictures of Na, Na's mother stopped shoppers and passerbys in the Little India district in Geylang, both areas close to where Na was last seen. Na's mother's dedication to finding Na was unparalleled. Na and Na's mother had once visited the tiny resort island of Sentosa, and knowing this, Na's mother went to the island in search of Na. She climbed the slopes of Bukit Timah Hill, looking for any signs of her, though she found nothing. A relative of Na's actually had a dream that Na was being held on Mount Faber, and so Na's mother had gone to the mountain just in case, though yet again, she found no sign of Na. Na's mother tried to put together a timeline of events of what had happened on the October Sunday. She knew for a fact that Na had made it to the food court, as that was where the phone booth was, and she had taken Na's call. Na's mother had told her on the phone call that there had been some, some issues with her return flight, so she wouldn't actually be returning until the following day, and Na hadn't seemed all too upset with that change in plans at all. She didn't seem too bothered by it. Tuk Leng Hao had seen Na go to the food court too, 
A barista at a coffee shop in the food hall had also seen her that afternoon at around 1pm. The barista describes Nar as wearing shorts and a denim jacket and as walking around barefoot. But after that, nothing. There had been no sightings of Nar, no more leads, no more information. An army of volunteers had immobilised to support Nar's mother in the search for her daughter, supporting her at Nar's vigil and handing out flyers with Nar's photo and information on. A local recycling company had printed these flyers for free to aid in the search, and had even set up a website for the missing eight-year-old. A local taxi company also chipped in, calling on the drivers of its some 17,000 taxis to be on the lookout for NAR, with plans in the works for the drivers to further distribute flyers of NAR. Parents and families throughout Singapore kept their eyes out for NAR and watched their own children closely, fearing that something may happen to their family too. The sense of community within Singapore was incredible. Everybody pitched in, everyone helped search, everyone desperately wanted to find Nar and see her return safely to the care of her mother. The subsequent media coverage of the search was at the forefront of every press channel and outlet. Every minor detail was published about Nar and her disappearance, keeping Nar's picture fresh in the mind of the public. And the police wasted no time or resources in their investigations into Nar's disappearance. The investigators initially focused their searches on the area surrounding the wholesale centre where Nar was last seen. And the police quickly learned that the last person to have seen Nar alive had been 22-year-old vegetable packer Tuk Leng Hao, the same man that Laura and her flatmates had spoken to at around 9pm on the night that Nar had gone missing. Even though Tuk Leng Hao had been 22 years old, he was described by regulars at the wholesale centre as being somewhat of a playmate of Nars. Tukleng Hao had an IQ of 76, which the investigators use as a way to depict Tukleng Hao of having low intelligence, almost low enough for him to have been considered as having an intellectual disability. Hi everyone, Editing Josh here. I just wanted to quickly jump in, just to quickly go over the IQ bit again, because I feel like a really glossed over in this i just really have to point out that iq and iq tests is a topic of hot debate within the scientific and academic communities whether it's valid whether it is applicable and whether it is suitable for trying to determine the intelligence of a human being and i personally believe that quantifying a, an entire human's intelligence and experience down into this one score is just not it's just not going to be accurate and it's not going to be a good basis of understanding intelligence within human beings in, our brains are far more complicated than that one singular number and intelligence is more than just academia it is also so many other things and so many other skills and intelligence may mean something different to you than it means to me so i just want to say take this iq stuff with a massive massive grain of salt um because hint of salt i don't know what the saying is i mean there are some studies i'm waffling now but there are some studies which are like oh it actually might actually be a good thing but also why are you assigning just these this arbitrary number to people um based on whether they can answer some questions and problem solve do you know what i mean getting an iq test done anyway is expensive and fairly exclusive to have it done properly um, and that in itself kind of excludes the vast majority of the population. And I kind of feel like some people have their IQ test done just so they can feel better about themselves and think they're better than other people. Do you know what I mean? 
Um, so yeah, anyway, back to the video. Essentially, just because Tuk Leng Hao has this low height IQ, this alleged low IQ, it doesn't mean that he is stupid, and you're gonna learn more about that um, in a few moments in this video. Investigators first spoke to Tuk Leng Hao formally on the 19th of October 2004, nine days after Na went missing, and he told the authorities that he had seen Na more or less immediately after she had hung up the phone to her mother. He told them that he had actually spoken to Nar, telling her that she should go home. He even offered to show the investigators the exact spot where he had spoken with Nar. However, the following day on the 20th of October, Tukling Hao changed his story. In this second version, he told the police that he had actually seen Nar being kidnapped by another trader or group of people at the centre. He claims that this trader or group had wanted to teach the girl's mother a lesson for some reason. Tuk Leng Hao then told the authorities that he knew this trader or group of traders well and that he'd be able to arrange for the eight-year-old to be released. However, Tuk Leng Hao claims that the phone number for this trader or group was in his other phone, a phone that he kept in his flat. The 22-year-old Malaysian-born vegetable packer agreed to the police's request to take a lie detector test the following morning and agreed to going with four police officers to collect the phone from his flats and another phone from his place of work. When they got back to the police station after collecting these phones, Tuk Leng Hao offered to do the lie detector test sooner that very night and the police agreed. The test was booked that evening to take place at the CID headquarters, and as the police escorted Tuk Leng Hao from the police station to the CID headquarters, he told the officers that he was hungry and asked to stop off at a 24-7 restaurant in a local train station to grab some food. The investigators agreed to this and accompanied Tuk Leng Hao into the restaurant. He ordered a chicken curry and tucked in, though halfway through his meal, he excused himself to go to the restaurant's bathroom. The officers stayed at the table as Tuk Leng Hao went to use the toilet. As low as Tuk Leng Hao's intellectual ability was made out to be, he was still a very cunning and scheming man. Tuk Leng Hao walked straight past the door to the toilets and out of the back door of the restaurants. He escaped. Tuk Leng Hao had been given a visitor's pass, which had the CID emblem on it when he had been giving his statements to the authorities, and he banked on this visitor's pass to help him cross through the customs checkpoints between Singapore and Malaysia. He wore it as he confidently and calmly walked through the checkpoint, hoping that the customs officers would think he was a police officer and not ask any questions. And Tukling Hao's plan worked. He crossed into Malaysia with no issues. Now, the police initially told the media that they hadn't enough evidence to charge Tukling Hao with anything in connection to Nas' disappearance, not wanting the public to find out how they had been embarrassingly duped by him. Though, they further told the press that his sudden disappearance made him a suspect in the case. As all of this was taking place, a team of forensic scientists had been searching through the wholesale centre, looking for evidence. The media and general public of Singapore still clutched to the hope that Na would be found safe and sound, completely unaware that the investigation had turned into one searching for evidence for when Na's body would be located. It was critical for any forensic evidence to be identified as quickly as possible as to ensure the evidence wouldn't deteriorate and that it could be used in a potential trial. And as Tuk Leng Hao had been the last person to be seen with eight-year-old Na, his place of work was an obvious starting point. Unfortunately, the forensics teams were initially unable to find any leads during their searches. 
The investigators only knew the facts. The estimated time of Nara's disappearance, the fact that she'd been seen wearing a denim jacket that afternoon, which was something the forensics teams could be on the lookout for, as fibres from such an article of clothing would have been released if there'd been any kind of a struggle or contact with anything. And the authorities also knew that Tukleng Hao had purchased some mangoes around the time of Nara's disappearance, which was of interest to the investigators, as if Nara's body was found and her stomach contained mango, it could provide a link to Tukleng Hao. The police thought it of the highest priority to establish their primary crime scene within this case, the place where Nara had been taken to or the place where she had been murdered. And a particular storeroom in Block 15 of the Wholesale Centre was quickly determined to have been of some importance. It was where Tukleng Hao had worked. The storeroom had also been flagged by the responding officers to the initial report of Nara's disappearance as appearing to have bloodstains on the walls. Forensics teams searched through the storeroom and managed to collect fibres found within it, and fibres found on a table in the office that was connected to it. A faint bloodstain on the wall of the storeroom was also swabbed, and they further collected fibre samples from the carpet of the storeroom. There had also been some staining on the carpets, which were also swabbed. And the preliminary tests of these swabs confirmed to the investigators that the stains contained traces of blood and urine. Whose blood and urine that actually was required further testing. It was on the 22nd of October 2004, almost two weeks after Na went missing, that the press first named Tukleng Hao as a person of interest in the investigation. And due to this press coverage, the public began a manhunt for him, determined to do their bit in finding the missing eight-year-old child. And this manhunt spread quickly throughout Singapore and even across the border into Malaysia. It soon found its way into Tukleng Hao's hometown. And after just over a week on the run, Tukleng Hao was found and surrendered to the local authorities. He was handed back over to the authorities in Singapore that very same day, and he immediately told the police that he hadn't killed eight-year-old Nar. His story once again changed, only this time he claims that she had collapsed to the floor and had begun to have what appeared to be a seizure, as he had played hide-and-seek with the little girl. Tukleng Hao told the investigators that this game of hide-and-seek, for some reason, involved Nar having her ankles tied together. According to the 22-year-old, he and Nar played games similar to this quite frequently, with Nar having her hands or legs tied up, though she would always apparently be able to untie them herself. But this time, during this game, something went seriously wrong. Tukleng Hao had switched off the lights in the office so that Nar could hide there, and playfully he came into the office and began to smack his hand on the table and call her name to let her know that he was now looking for her in the game of hide and seek. But it was as he was doing this, Tukleng Hao claimed that he heard a sudden thump. The 22-year-old switched on the lights in the office to see the little girl lying on the floor. Quote, Something was amiss. She seemed to have vomited blood because blood was trickling out from the right corner of her mouth. She seemed to be going into a spasm. Her eyes were wide open and there was urine all over the floor. I immediately went over to call her name, but she did not reply and she was still having her spasm. I did not know what to do. I wanted to untie her ankles, but I did not know how to undo the knots. I sat on the chair in a daze and looked at her. Tukleng Hao then told the police that he, quote, chopped at the back of Na's neck in an attempt to wake her up after she had stopped moving. But Na didn't react to it, and Tukleng Hao began to panic. 
Now, what he alleges happens next is pretty hard to establish as he actually gave several conflicting accounts and versions of the story over the course of the interrogations. Quote, My mind was totally blank. I do not know why, but I put both my hands around her neck and pressed it. I pressed it momentarily with my eyes closed. After some time, I relaxed my hands. I opened my eyes and looked at her. This time, I noticed her face was greyish white, although her eyes were still open. Tuk Lang Hao then claims that Na began to hiccup, something which went on for a considerably long time. Apparently, this hiccuping freaked Tuk Lang Hao out, and so he decided to stamp on her body. Bear in mind that throughout this entire, throughout this entire situation, Tuk, Tuk Lang Hao never once went to try and get help, medical attention, or anything else, which would have been the majority, if not all of the first responses from anybody else. You see a young girl who you're playing with having some kind of seizure. The first thing I would do is go and get help, not choke her and stomp on her. Tuckling Hao's versions of events and like his justifications and how he describes what happened is just so beyond bizarre and frightening to me. It's disturbing and what he did next was even more disturbing he decided to strip the eight-year-old girl's body and he committed unthinkable acts in an attempt to or so he alleged to frame Nas' death as a rape-related murder Tukleng Hao then packed Nas' naked body into a cardboard box loaded it onto the back of his motorbike and drove to Teluk Blanga Hill Park sorry if I pronounced that wrong where he threw the cardboard box over the edge. He watched as the box fell from the cliffside and into a heavily wooded forest below. The following morning after that confession from Tukleng Hao on the 23rd of October 2004, the police descended on the wooded area where Tukleng Hao claimed to have disposed of Na's remains. Tukleng Hao had even drawn them a map as to where the cardboard box was, and after just half an hour of searching, the police found it. The box was 30 metres below the spot where Tukleng Hao had marked on this map. Now, the authorities did recover the box, but they were careful not to open it or contaminate it, fearing potentially destroying forensic evidence, and so they sealed it in a large plastic bag before sending it off to the local hospital. Na's mother was then notified and brought to the hospital, where she made a positive visual identification of her daughter's body. She had identified it via Na's front teeth, one being slightly larger and angled to its neighbour, identification which can only be described as deeply traumatic and horrific. An official scientific identification was then completed via forensic dentistry. It was confirmed that the dental development on the remains were that of a child aged about eight years old, and when x-rays were compared to Nas' dental records, it was a match. Nas' body had been found within the cardboard box in nine plastic bags, that had each been layered and wrapped around her remains, which the forensic pathologist carefully untied and unwrapped. Those plastic bags actually meant that Nas' remains had been quite well preserved. The cardboard box and the plastic bags found within were then sent to forensics to be compared against samples and forensic evidence at Tukleng Hao's place of work. The fibres that they had collected from the storeroom and office were confirmed to have been fibres from denim clothing, and the blood and hair samples were confirmed to have contained the DNA profile of eight-year-old Hong Na. 
An autopsy revealed that Nara had consumed mango shortly before her death, which was something the prosecution used heavily in their theory. The prosecution presented the theory that Tukleng Hao had used the mangoes to lure Na into the storeroom where he then smothered her. Her official cause of death was determined to have been acute airway occlusion, or blockage, consistent with that of a smothering. The forensic pathologist discovered five injuries on the girl's face, close to her mouth, which is consistent with injuries sustained when someone is smothered with a hand covering the mouth and nose. The injuries were further established to have been inflicted with enough force that the cause of death, smothering, was extremely probable. There were also injuries found on the scalp, which were found to have been caused either by the head being smacked against a flat, hard object, or by heavy hitting to the head. It could also have been caused by someone stomping or kicking the head. Injuries to the right arm and left thigh were also found. The forensic pathologist, though, was unable to say with confidence whether Nara had been sexually assaulted. However, the lack of physical evidence of a sexual assault does not rule out the possibility of it having taken place. The prosecution, with these findings, found it extremely difficult to believe Tukleng Hao's story of how the death of Na had been accidental. The findings from the autopsy did support the prosecution's belief that Tukleng Hao had killed Na to prevent her from reporting him for raping her. It was difficult for the prosecution to believe that the findings could support the theory that Tukleng Hao had panicked after Na had accidentally died. The trial against Tukleng Hao began on the 11th of July 2005, and the prosecution relied on the theory that Tukleng Hao had lured Na into the storeroom with the mangoes so he could rape her before smothering her. It was then theorised, based on the evidence, that Tukleng Hao stamped on Na's head and body before wrapping her up and stuffing her into the cardboard box. Tukleng Hao's defence team tried to argue that Na had died accidentally, and it could be argued that some of the evidence in this case could support the defence's theory. On cross-examination, the forensic pathologist who carried out the autopsy agreed with the defence that it was possible that the airway occlusion that was determined to have been Na's cause of death could have occurred if Na had been put into a plastic bag while she was still alive, such as one of the nine plastic bags that she was ultimately wrapped in. Further, the forensic pathologist agrees that the little girl could have died after choking on her own blood or vomit. When the defence counsel suggested that Na had suffered a fit or a seizure, an expert witness who was a doctor, I also believe was the same forensic pathologist, testifies that children usually didn't develop uh, any episodes of fits without any medical or family history, and that it was unlikely that if Na had bumped her head against something solid like a table, that it could have brought on an episode of fits that could have been so fatal. Though the forensic pathologist agrees that he was unable to determine whether there had been bleeding in Na's brain due to decomposition causing the brain to liquefy. Further, Tukleng Hao's description of Na having spasms, urinating and hiccuping match typical symptoms of a seizure, and that a bruise found on Na's tongue could have been caused by her biting her own tongue during a fit. On top of, on top of that, the forensic pathologist agreed that Na's tongue could have rolled back into the back of her mouth during a seizure, causing an airway obstruction and subsequent death. Though it was made clear that just because these explanations were possible, it didn't make them fact. 
The prosecution had one major piece of evidence up their sleeves, which would quickly settle any doubts in anybody's mind that Tukling Hao had murdered Na. A video of Tukling Hao reenacting what happened to Na, taken after his arrest. In this video, Tukling Hao can be seen showing how he wrapped up Na's body. Of course, they use a plastic dummy for the reenactment, with the nine plastic bags. He demonstrated how he pressed his fingers on her neck and how he chopped the girl on the back three times. He then showed how he stamped on her head. In the video at the very end, Tukling Hao can be heard saying, quote, just like that, just like that. Now, Tukling Hao was actually assessed by a psychiatrist who told the courts that he displayed three key symptoms of schizophrenia. The first was, quote, grossly disorganised or catatonic behaviour. The irrational, motiveless and unplanned murder of Na was apparently a symptom of this. The second symptom was, quote, emotional flattening, which is where a patient's mood is not a good fit for the situation that they're in. The psychiatrist cited how Tukling Hao had failed to display remorse or regret for murdering a little girl who he was close to, somebody who he had been known to have been playmates with. The third symptom was delusions. These delusions, testified this psychiatrist, were of the Chinese men or the traders who had supposedly kidnapped Na. The prosecution, upon hearing this, gave the delusions a much simpler term. Lies. A different psychiatrist then took the stand and he testified that he'd never seen a case where someone had suddenly, without warning and without any trigger such as substance abuse or a major traumatic event, suddenly become mentally ill at the time of the offence, stating that he would have shown signs of disturbance beforehand. This second psychiatrist further argues that there was no basis to conclude that Tukling Hao's actions had been irrational, motiveless and inexplicable, due to the fact that his ability to efficiently dispose of Na's body and flee and escape to Malaysia were inconsistent with schizophrenia. Tukling Hao's planning for this crime was something that was also noted by the judge during his judgment. Tukling Hao had been aware of the CCTV cameras that were at his workplace, and he had actually used this knowledge to make sure that he used the bins in block 16 to dispose of Nas clothing, as he knew there was no CCTV coverage of that area, whereas there was CCTV coverage of the bins at block 15, which was the block where he worked. The judge concluded that he did not accept the defence's arguments that Tuk Long Hao had been schizophrenic at the time of the murder, and categorically rejected the defence of diminished responsibility. The judge said, quote, His conduct after the killing was clearly the product of a cool and calculated mind. And subsequently, on the 26th of August 2005, Tuk Long Hao was found guilty of the murder of Huang Na and was sentenced to death. Now, Tukling Hao appealed this sentence, but on the 25th of January 2006, the Court of Appeal upheld this death sentence. Now, this appeal process and this Court of Appeal um, is extremely interesting, and it was quite a rare event that happened within it, with two judges agreeing that they should uphold it, and then another judge not agreeing, and it's pretty complicated and pretty in-depth, and if I included it all in this video, it makes this video way longer than it's necessary and is spending way too much time on Tukling Hao. If you want to find out more about the appeal, um, you can find my sources down below. The death sentence for Tukling Hao still stood following this appeal. Now, we actually tried to plead for clemency to the Singapore president at the time, 
But on the 23rd of October 2006, it was announced that his pleas had failed. And so on the 3rd of November 2006, Tuk Hao was executed for the brutal murder and rape of eight-year-old Huang Na. We can only hope that Na's family have been able to find justice within this case and are able to move forward, remembering Na for the happy and intelligent girl that she was. It's also important to note that Tuk Hao's defence lawyer, even on his deathbed, even when this lawyer was in the final stages of his life, was adamant that Tuk Hao was innocent and that it had been an accidental death and that he didn't deserve what he received and the sentencing that he received. Now, I don't know if you agree with the death penalty or not, so it's a whole different topic of conversation, but regardless, Tuk Hao still confessed, admitted, and there was evidence to prove he stomped on an eight-year-old girl who was having a seizure, an alleged seizure. He sexually assaulted her, he raped her. He bagged her up, he disposed of the body, and he fled the crime scene. He was supposed to be looking after this girl. He was a, a person of authority, he was a person of responsibility, and he abused that. He abused the eight year, this eight-year-old girl, he abused Nar, and regardless of whether her death had been accidental, he still beat her, strangled her, raped her, and then disposed of her body. And that in itself, to me, is makes the sentence still justifiable, whether it was an accidental death or not. This eight-year-old girl who had her whole life ahead of her, who was extremely intelligent, who was someone who, you know, could potentially one day change the world, have her entire life cut short because of this horrific monster. That's just my opinion, though. I'm interested to hear what you think down in the comment section below. That's everything that I have for you in today's case. If you like this episode and want to see more true crime content just like this, please do hit that subscribe button and that bell icon so you can be notified every single time I post a brand new true crime video. Most of the people that watch my videos aren't actually subscribed, so make sure you're subscribed. I'm also just quickly want to talk about something that I'm a part of, which is the very first CrimeCon UK, which is happening at the end of this month, September 2021, and it is this incredible true crime event in London that's COVID safe, and it is the first one ever. America has been lucky enough to have these events across the country for a few years now, so I'm so happy that they've decided to make the jump across the pond and have invited me to join this incredible convention. Join me, other content creators, podcasters, survivors, family members, industry experts, and so many others at the world's number one true crime event. This event has so many amazing things to see and do. I'm honestly not quite sure how everyone is going to be able to get everything done in just one weekend. CrimeCon gives you the opportunity to get hands-on experience with various industry practices, including sessions with canine units and your chance to solve your very own case. There are also plenty of chances to meet all of the speakers, creators, and other true crime fans from across the world, all during this one weekend. This gives you the chance to chat about your favourite cases with some of the best creators and minds, and the best professionals and experts out there. Now with COVID-proof tickets, even if the event gets rescheduled, you are guaranteed your place at the event when a new date is chosen, as your ticket just rolls over. And if you decide you don't want to wait for the next dates, you're able to get a full refund, no questions asked. Use code Joshua to get 10% off your tickets to this incredible true crime weekend. I cannot wait to see you all at CrimeCon 2021. 
And finally, a special thanks to Magellan TV for sponsoring this video. You can find a link to get your one month free trial at the top of the description and in the pinned comments. Uh, I just also want to quickly say that I'm really sorry for the inconsistent uploading that has happened this year. It's been a really, really difficult year for me. And I've been, I'm trying to work really hard now to kind of get back on the schedule and get you one video a week every Sunday. Um, but I need to feel like we need to come up with what we should call a Sunday, like what we should call this upright day. So let me know down below what you think we should call it. Anyway, with all that being said, I'll see you in the next case. If you or someone you know has been affected by issues covered in our programming, including this episode, then please use the link in the description for information, advice, and support.